With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Humans have an addiction to religion, whether they admit it or not. And so for me to check that religion, that's what that means to me, that everything is created. That would mean that nature is created and human nature is created. And so it gives you like the big picture in in terms of like checking your ego, perhaps. So trying to put into like a Jordan Peterson realm, um, you know, maybe I need to think about it a little bit more. No, but, but let's the, but let's, let's, is, let's think about it. Push it. Yeah. Like, yeah. what's well, so so? Think of a situation that was difficult for you, and how does this understanding change the way you might have reacted, or or was the way? So you one reacted? of the most common questions I get, um, you know, is like, oh, how can you be a scientist and believe in God? So first things first. So you have to look at what are the sources. Believing in God, you know, is is really an immense concept, and it really presumes a lot on the part of the person answering the question, right? Like he or she can confirm the reality of an omnipotent, omniscient being, if such a being exists. So first of all, you have to, uh, I have to question that assumption. So what I normally say is I don't know that God exists. There are degrees of evidence that people use for God's existence, but the ultimate definition of who I am is more suited to agnosticism, which is a practicing agnosticism, in that I have to go to temple or church or whatever. It's not enough for me, like Freeman Dyson told me, well, I believe, I don't know if I'm an agnostic, but I don't go to church. And I said, oh, so you don't go to the same church as Richard Dawkins doesn't go to. Like, how do you know? Like, do you give charity? What do you do as an atheist, as an agnostic? If you call yourself an agnostic, that means you're not an atheist and you're not a believer. So what do you do that differentiates you from either camp? Well, you don't go to church, maybe, so that's different than the believer, but you don't go to, um, but you also, you know, but that's similar to an atheist. Maybe you don't give charity, so that's like an atheist, but it's not like a believer. So what do you do that's unique? For me, the scientific method or the Jewish method is impelling me to continue to always question my assumptions. Yeah. So to question, what does it mean that the earth was created and the sun was created on the fourth day? What does that mean to me? First of all, it means that the religious people who, there are religious rabbis who say that they can prove the universe is 14 billion years old from Genesis. So I immediately say that's complete nonsense and here's why. Because first things first, the sun wasn't created till the fourth day. So how do you have the laws of physics that they try to pigeonhole like the Big Bang and the quark uh, gluon transition, all the stuff we talk about. Uh, they try to shoehorn that into day one. Then day two is like the CMB. Day three is like the formation of the solar system. Day four is the sun, you know, like that. And it's complete nonsense. So I can refute that with a statement in the Torah. So that means I don't have to dedicate any more energy to trying to prove the Bible is true. 
That's liberating. Yeah. It's very liberating. And, and there's another— That's a rule that I live by because I—sorry to interrupt, James, yeah, no, but, but it's, a par- it's a parsimony. It's a parsimonious principle. It's an economy of thought. So it's Occam's razor. If I don't have to think about something, it's like Steve Jobs wore the same turtleneck. It's, it removes decision fatigue. I don't have to think of anymore. I'll be like, well, what's this guy, Stephen—I uh, forget the name. Uh, this pretty famous guy at the Discovery Institute— um, and he's got all these books out about, you know, Darwin was wrong, here's why. I don't have to think about him anymore because now I can say, look, you know, this their premise is completely faulty. They used to think the universe is 15 billion years old, so they wrote the book and made it come out. Now we know it's 13 billion years old, so uh, everything that they said previously I can just disregard. They're, they have no credibility to stand on. The religious people. Now the atheists, you know, who are saying, well, this is, we, we don't have a religion. Now I can say, no, look, lo and behold, you do have a religion. And you're not being sensitive. You're not actually an atheist. You're a devoutly religious, but it just means that you have no God. Yeah, and so so it's interesting. Why would you? Um, why do you default to the Torah to help you? It's kind of like, like you say, like a lot of people outsource their decisions. Like I'm going to outsource my decisions to Democrats. So okay, give me an issue, and I'll give you the Democrat response, and that's my opinion. So you're outsourcing your decisions to the Torah. What leads you to that? I think the Torah has uh, a tremendous amount of rational wisdom in it, uh, independent of whether God wrote it or not, or God existed not, or not. It has rules that have withstood the test of time for millennia. It has practical interpersonal rules. It has rules for how you relate to your fellow man, how you relate to God, and how you relate to yourself. So it's, as you said last time, it's the oldest self-help book in history. Right. I mean, it really is. So I default to that as a, what, you know, it's called a touchstone. So a touchstone is a piece of rock that you would rub what you thought putatively was gold onto, and it would make a mark. And that mark would reveal whether or not this was, had the same properties. It was a form of calibration. So it would calibrate whatever stone you were checking against some standard. Because you do it against gold, you do it against fake gold potentially, and you'd know it. So what I do is I run things by the Torah. So why that versus like the Quran, for instance, which I wouldn't say is a good guide to living but a lot of people default to it. I'm a purist, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a zealot, but I, I like to go back to primary source materials like St. John's College, right? So you go back to the primary source. For me, the primary source of the three Abrahamic religions is Judaism, is the Torah. And I think it's a huge difference, and I want to make that point in our book, the difference between the polyistic origins of the universe and the monotheistic origins of the universe. That's very crucial because, you know, having, having multiple gods allows you for this network effect to take place between the gods, right? So you can have gods squabbling for supremacy. You can get all sorts of paganistic, you know, interpretations for why science has... So monotheism allowed science to take place in the fact that once you accepted that God existed, or once you accepted that there wasn't a god for thunder and that was, God was different from the god of earthquakes, if you then said there is one god and there's a rule that the god created, even if you don't believe in God you have to agree that one God is superior to multiple gods. If there's going to be at least one God, only one God is superior to multiple gods, to two or more. So I'm drawn to monotheistic religions. It's the oldest monotheistic religion, which means it's had a lot of A-B testing. Right. And because of that, uh, now I can use it to compare. It's not that I go through it as a checklist and say, you know, if I do get married to my wife, I need to give her three zazim and, and a camel to be named later. You know, I, I look at it and I say, why is this put here? Why is it that, let me use marriage again. Why is there a contract that specifies in the Torah 
what the wife gets if we're divorced and what the husband owes the wife in terms of intimacy, sexual intimacy, in terms of physical support, financial support. Why is, like, is that not wise? What did it do? Well, for the first time in history, women had agency. They had some material stake. Yes, it's not as great as Gloria Steinem would have liked, but think about it in its context. There's a book that had to speak to readers 3,000 years ago and speaks to readers today. So it's time-tested. And in that case, I'm going to use that until further notice. It's like, I could come up with a checklist for my airplane, James. I could do, I could possibly come up with a better one than the one that was made by the manufacturers, theoretically, if I spent my whole life. I mean, I'm pretty smart. You know, I could do it. <laughs> uh, but, um, but why do that? Why not look at what exists and then try to apply it and then look for conflicts in it? And it's not to say there aren't conflicts in the Torah that I have pro great problems with. Uh, there are things in there that you know, I suspect very heavily were not written by God um, and so forth, if God exists, which I don't know, and I freely admit that. But the ultimate thing, James, is like, I'm a scientist. What do scientists do? We solve puzzles. What's a puzzle? A puzzle is different than a mystery. A mystery cannot be solved, right? But a puzzle can be solved. And, but both bring you delight. Like, have you ever done, well, you do crossword puzzles, you play yeah. chess, right? I mean, you could just have, you know, you play one chess game and be like, I'm done with chess forever, right? Like, okay, it's just variations of what I just did. Or, yeah, but, but you do it again and again because every time you do it, you get a little bit of that thrill that you got the very first time you played chess. Um, similar with solving a Rubik's Cube. Like, you do it once, you're going to keep doing it even though you've done it. I've been there, done that, the banister effect, right? So, so my question, you know, is like, here's this great thing and I have a, it's a great mystery. I love solving mysteries or, or, or solving puzzles rather. And so I'm going to start with the oldest one. And then when I find inconsistencies, I'm going to look at them rationally. And, and, but the difference between me and Richard Dawkins is I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt because it's done a lot more for me personally than has Richard Dawkins. Just expanding on that, let's just take the seven days of creation as an example, mm -hmm. because this is the one people try to do this one-to-one -one mapping of the seven days creation onto the origin of the universe. That itself, you could almost take any situation in life and put it through a process equivalent to the seven days of creation. So the first day is, you know, let there be light, right? So, so, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then there was light. So now you're taking, you could take any situation and, you know, just like in science, we have this known area before the situation and then this unknown area afterwards. And we have to start, you know, suddenly there's light. So we're shedding light before, before you can take action, you have to shed light onto a situation. So somebody hits you, you can't just knee jerk respond back. You have to kind of shed, you have to say, let there be light and you have to divide the light from the darkness. So, so why did this person do it? Were there good reasons? Were there reasons I'm not understanding? You have to name and label what's happening, like even in your own emotions, like, am I getting angry? Should I respond back? Will that put me in jail? Like, you know, and then the, you know, the, the, the second day is divide, you know, the, the waters from the land, right? That's the second day. Yes. Yeah. And, and so now you have to say, okay, well, it's not just that it's chaos. Like there's water and land, water and land. It's like, okay, now we've got to separate out what we, what we know. And, and we have to stand on firm ground to make a decision about the waters. It feels like you could do this one-to-one -one mapping of Genesis onto any situation to figure out what to do. And it's the same. And, and, and that applies to the big bang that applies to if, if your wife were to leave you, if someone were to hit you, if someone were to fire you from a job, like, it seems like this is even the seven days of creation are, are, are by themselves a guide to not only life, but the scientific method. Like we have to, 
just by definition, we don't know something. Right, the animals, the earth. Right, like we're, we're kind of figuring it out as God's figuring it out in, for any situation. Like, okay, now, there, now I can see the light. Now, okay, now let's separate out something a little more solid, the water from the land. Now we have to have the animals and- Right, and God says like with surprise, when he creates each thing, he says, he says it was good, right? He saw the land and it was good. But only with man does he say it was very good. When he created the human being, man, male and female, he created them. He saw it was tov ma'od, which means very good. That's unique. And so that suggests surprise, right? It's, it's different than the previous other ones. And there's something unique about man compared to the monkeys or whatever. And so that should... You know, that communicates the, that's illegal. Now that becomes legal, James, because now the human being has infinite worth such that if you kill a human being, it's the ultimate crime. So now we're into the legal realm. Yeah, I agree. So now you can translate, like we went from the Big Bang, like thermodynamics of the Big Bang, electroweak transition, light, chaos, entropy theory. And now we're at like, um, you know, murder, capital punishment. <laughs> but we got there, we got there only because step-by-step step, we we labeled what we were learning. So, okay, we see here's the light, here's the darkness. Here's the land, here's the water. Here's the... the um, it's distinctions, the separations. Right, yep. and here's, here's the, yep. the... Animals and man. Right, the animals, yep. and the animals have Male lots and of, female. Right, and so by coming to this top-down understanding, that's how we should approach every situation, every argument. When, when you're a lawyer making an argument in court, you say, you know, on this day, Jack was just walking along um, nothing was going out wrong with his life and, and boom, let there be light. The, the situation happens and we have to label it. Like, was he Action. murdered? Was he accidentally hit by a car? Was we have to start labeling, you know, and then in the car, it was appears he was drunk. Like, so, so now we're separating out the water from the land and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's sort of like this, this guide for the scientific method, actually. Like we're, we're not taking as absolute faith the way, you know, we're, we're, we're taking into account the fact that things change and our understanding of things get gets more and more detailed and i think mm -hmm. i think that's an interesting way to look at things as well as, as opposed to saying like i feel like all these rabbis and physicists or these rabbi physicists are, mm -hmm. are playing too much of a game like oh, okay well this is the first day it's when inflation happens and this is the second right. as opposed exactly. to say as opposed to bringing it into the personal uh and i think the, ultimately the the personal is the the step people don't take for some reason like take take the constitution as an example what's the first mm -hmm. right in the bill of rights it's the freedom of speech of speech so so people look at that in this societal way like everybody is allowed by the way god spoke everything into existence but yeah go on yeah. right and so well well yeah. it's all connected so so but but like most people look at this even constitutional lawyers look at this in terms of well if there's freedom of speech in public places then this person's allowed to say that but nobody very few people take it into the personal like Oh, I have freedom to say what I want and nobody and anytime somebody blocks me from saying what I want, then something is going wrong with my life. If if I feel like I'm around a lot of people who prevent me from saying what I want. So you could take all of these societal rights and I very rarely I've never seen anybody kind of look at it from the personal. And I feel like it's the same way with these overly intellectual arguments about mapping the, the seven days of creation on onto uh, the Big Bang and physics, but you could then take it and move it into the personal. And I feel like that's that's unique and, and interesting, a guide to life based on not only the seven days of creation, but then like you say, it goes into the legal that, and that suddenly you're into the Talmud. And that's why the, the, you know, this idea of the physics of God actually can make my life better. 
So it's a good story, mm-hmm. and it can make my life better, and it can be educational. It's like it's like mm-hmm. the trifecta of ethical, yeah, yeah, uh, of 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 a book, really. Like yeah. like a, a unique way of looking at things, entertaining, and makes my life better. So I, again, I feel like it's not just intellectual masturbation; it's actually going to make your life better by reading it. So just the same way Jordan Peterson takes the myth of Peter Pan, and it's not just entertaining, but he shows how you know ultimately this this everlasting quest for youth gets fatigued and we ultimately have to grow older. And what does that mean? So he takes right. it into the personal. I, I feel there's something there that nobody's yeah. done. And also with death, you know, we have to include death. I mean, that occurs in the first chapter, you know, like, or the genesis of physics or the, you know, physics of Genesis, you know, but yeah, there's this danger. There's two dangers in popular science writing when it comes to like religious things. One is to be, like attacking Richard Dawkins because um, yeah. that that's been so well worn. You know, they call it actually Dawkins' fleas. You know, the publishing industry they won't publish anything if you're just like Dawkins sucks and here's why. Um, even if you're like you know Nobel quality physicist and they just you know it's not interesting to them uh, because it's it's he's so unique at what he does. You have to kind of like outdo him by his, but but not uh, even reference him so to speak. So it has to be. But right, you still convincing. get caught in his frame. Um, yeah, without, his frame, exactly. Without trying too hard to be under his spell. And the other thing is people will just dismiss it. Oh, like, you know, there's, you're not legitimate. You're a sellout if you go into religion or, you know, or, or, or you believe you should uh, stone your wife if she touches, you know, another man. You know, whatever. It just like pigeonholes you. I guess I could not care about that uh, so much. I mean, there are plenty of worse books out there. But the question is, yeah, do, what's, the, what's my motivation? Is it to... Is it to, you know, get critical acclaim? Is it to really help people? Is it to, you know, because there's only so much time. I mean, I've got like five or six book ideas. The one that I want to talk to your agent friend about is what would you put in your ethical will? What would all these great thinkers give away? Because my theory is that that will prevent suicide. It will, like, if you write down what you're going to give to the world based on what you've learned, there's some fraction of the population, uh, you know, it's like writing a suicide note. Like, how many people stop trying to kill themselves when they write their note, right, James? I right. mean, you've researched this a lot. You know, it's kind of like a form of that, but you could even be bolder and be positive. It's not like, write your suicide note. It's write your will, and then the corollary effect will be a positive one, hopefully, that will prevent suicide. Like, my advisor who killed himself with, you know, almost winning the Nobel Prize and, and having a loving wife and kids kills himself. Uh, if he had sat down and thought about like what will be the impact of the loss to humanity if he doesn't write his will, and then like you can kill yourself after, but I don't think you'll want to. That's an aspect of it. But taking like wisdom from Jim Simons, from Eric Weinstein, from James Altucher, all from my podcast, all where I've interviewed them, you know, clean up the audio, run it by them, go through it, and just compile it, and then put an introduction and a conclusion on it. You know, what have I learned from it? What did I expect going into it? And it's like this book by David Brooks called The Road to Character where he talks about like people, you know, when you, if you have, a, if your kid is like ugly and, uh, and he's not good in sports and uh, he doesn't get good grades, what do you say about him? This, that, this was my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> what did your parents say? Well, uh, with your parents, it's probably a little difficult, but uh, what do people say about their kid in that situation? Slow, no good. <laughs> <laughs> no, they say he's a good, at least he's a good person. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Right. So, but My that's the most important that thing. <laughs> I know that. I know that. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Uh, but that's the most important thing to me is that your kid is a good character. I don't care if he got a valedictorian in, in middle school. I care. Does he or she have a good character? And that's the most important thing. But it's always the least. It's like the consolation prize. Ah, he's he's ugly, but at least he has good character. You know. Uh, but but actually, that's the most important thing. So that was kind of like part of the thesis of this book by David Brooks. 
and it was you know run, you know Oprah you know had it in one of her books, but um, but the point is, it's kind of like it's taken from the Torah. Actually, some of the the stuff he talks about is like the difference between every character in creation and even creation itself. I don't know if you know this, James, but if you read the first book of the Torah, the Genesis chapter one, which is called Bereshis, there's two descriptions of the origin of the world. There's two descriptions of Adam being formed. Right. Um, and, and for each one of these, there's two different descriptions. It's, and, and that has led scholars to think there are two different authors and so forth. But actually, people like David Brooks and these famous rabbis read it differently. And they say, no, for example, Adam had two different natures. He had the nature to like plow the fields and, and raise good crops and so forth. And then he had the relation where he was um, relating to God in the image of God, doing sacrifices and working on his character, so to speak. So they call that, you know, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Like nobody cares that you went to Cornell, really, James. I mean, at in your in your eulogy, you know, at, at 120 years old, no one's going to say, oh, well, he went to Cornell, you know, isn't that awesome? No, you're going to say he impacted millions of people through his writing, his podcast, his, you know, that's the eulogy virtue, whereas the resume virtue was Cornell, right? So which matters more? It's like your character matters more. And in this case, for what I'm trying to do, it's like what you leave people, like Jim Simons, I want to make the case that his ethical will is more important than his monetary will because his monetary will is just going to affect his kids. But the ethical will is going to affect the whole world potentially. Right. And, and you know, you know what I see with this is, I see this as like a huge TED talk that, that is then easily made into a best-selling book. So this is the sort of TED talk with mm. 10 million views mm that you then make into a, a book. I even have a title for it. You want to hear the title? Yeah. Oh, well, I like the Call ethical it. will. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be the subtitle. Uh, the, uh, the, so the title I have so far is Deadlines. So um, uh, so dead space lines, like deadline, because your life's coming to uh, an yeah. end, you have a deadline. But it's also like lives of the dead, like this is how you live on. And so it's how writing your ethical will will prevent suicide, you know, whatever, prevent suicide, um, uh, increase joy and uh, create happiness, something like that, you know, three different things. It's so funny titles. because, and uh, again, I never, mm -hmm. you, the, the titles, the title, whatever you feel is the best. Yeah, yeah. But it's so funny how you like the wordplay, right? Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas if you just say, write Direct, your ethical, ethical will, everyone's right. going to know what you mean and they're still going to be just as interested. Right. <laughs> like yeah, deadlines is going to be like, oh yeah, that's cute. What's he talking about? Right. And uh, yeah, losing the Nobel Prize is like obvious what, what, what it's about, right? Yeah, you're right. And yeah, you look at like Nassim Taleb's book. books who he, Nassim Taleb, he writes in almost this unreadable fashion except for the title, The Black Swan and Fooled by Randomness and Anti-Fragile. Anti-Fragile, yeah. There's such skin in the game. There's such great titles. Yeah. Um, I think I told you in my next book, I have a chapter that's just about his titles. And I specifically say, you don't have to read the books, you just have to read the titles. Yeah. <laughs> and you know the entire book, and they're that's great. That's true. There's a lot of interesting things there. I like this idea of kind of this unique way of mapping God and creation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, physics onto a me methodology for living life and making decisions. Separately, mm -hmm. I like the ethical will. I think that by itself is not religious, but could be a whole TED talk. And 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 then book, I think I think those two ideas by themselves are like breakthrough, taking to the next level sorts of ideas. Yeah, because I think the unique thing about I'm not I'm not the best physicist in the universe. I'm not the best you know uh, ethics ethical person. But I think my unique thing is Torah wisdom combined with a scientific way of looking at the at the world and curiosity of looking at the world with with uh, with combined together as idea sacks. You know, that's my unique niche. You know, Eric's like pure science, brilliant. Sam's like that, and, and he delves into the... But he's almost like an anti... 
you know, he's like more anti-religion than he's religion. It's like he's defined by what he's not, so to speak. Right, but still the idea of questioning the unknown is both yeah. in physics and religion. Now, and yes. except in religions where it becomes dogma, um, where there might be like a charismatic leader or a, a right. you know a, a, a religious sect that you know takes things literally, I think the the basics of religion allow for interpretation, whether it's Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism. Mm -hmm. I think that's the scientific method too. The religion of the scientific method is that most things are unknown, so we need to constantly search out. And that, and that includes for personal relationships. Like you never really know the, you never can really define the universe totally. You just have to ask questions and test theories and, and use the, the Jewish method or the science, the Jewish method to kind of decide on how far can you go in terms of learning? And then how far can you go in terms of acting? And you know, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of the same for the scientific method. Yeah. That's right. You want to assume the difference. You want to assume the conclusion, test it, refine it, iterate it, uh, but also adversarial. Like I don't just accept it because I like you and you're, you know, you're my friend in the in the in the you know faculty club. But I'm going to test it, and if it's useful and beautiful, you know, like Weinstein always says, you're, you know, there are things that we're like physicists will give, uh, will win the Nobel Prize, and that gives them prestige. You know, that's like choosing yourself. But then there are physicists who win the Nobel Prize and give the Nobel Prize prestige, you know, like Dirac or Einstein or somebody like that. And it is true. There are, you know, kind of like rank and file people. Oh, I discovered a superconductor that transitions at 70 Kelvin or, you know, whatever. That, that's cool, but it's not in the same league as like, I derived, you know, general relativity and the laws of uh, the speed of light travel, et cetera. There's a difference in it. So I, I like that. I, I like that kind of, you know, because it's also actionable, practical, but yeah, so it's it's all this. But the James, the thing for me is just like, how do I freaking do it? I've got kids. I feel so guilty. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with feeling a little guilty because that shows that you, there are other decisions. And mm -hmm. if you weren't feeling guilty, then that would be a little weird. Like that, there, that mm -hmm. there's no other decisions other than podcasting or doing stand up comedy. But <laughs> I feel like each step of the way, as long as I'm not, as long as I'm kind of learning and improving, I'm going to be a better person for them and for society. And you know. For instance, and a role model for them, yeah. For instance, for both podcasting and I'll I'll compare it to comedy. Like what you learn is not just how to make jokes or how to interview people, but you learn different perspectives on how to view the world. Like like I could using the comedy way of life, I could walk into a room and instead of just saying, "Hey, this is all the things that are right in this room," I could look at the one thing that's wrong in this room, right. and I've built up that muscle. And so that helps me when I'm looking at my kids' lives or other people's lives or you know, helping people who are involved with, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I do lots of different things. Like, yeah. um, I have a call after this about yeah. black lives matter with, with one of the main African-American guys out there who's oh, trying awesome. to write a, a book on this. And I've kind mm -hmm. of been semi ghost writing the book for him. And Charlemagne. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, uh, he, he, you know, That's awesome. every, every week or two, he, he resurfaces and then, and pushes <laughs> it a little bit more forward. I hope he knows the election's coming up soon, but, <laughs> I know. Yeah, but it's like, but it's like, I don't have to do that either, but because of all these different experiences, you become not a civilian, you become somebody that's, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're called to action in many different ways. And that, you know, it's like I'm. It's like you're It's like you're surrendering to the force. Like this is what the force guides me, and uh, you know <laughs> that's another way of looking at it. And and yeah. and then yeah, my like my daughter just wrote to me, and I'll call her later. But yeah. you know that 
I, I wasn't always there when they were six years old. I wouldn't have been that good for them when they were six years old. They went to school. They dealt with their mom. I would see yeah. them sometimes, and that's it. Uh, it reminds me, uh, I have an opening bit. So you always say, you know, what comedy is about, you know, kind of walking into the room and noticing what's different. This is my opening bit when I, when I become the stand-up cosmic. So I get, come in. I'm like, look, I know what you're all thinking. It's the elephant in the room. We got to address it. You know, it's on everybody's mind. How do we unify gravity with quantum mechanics in a relativistic framework? You know, just like something yeah. that's on nobody's mind because it's like the opposite effect of like trying to figure out what's on anybody's mind. But, is like, but then I would do, I would do um, uh -huh. one more twist after that because that's funny and they'll yeah. think that's the joke. And then yeah. one more twist is like, and what does it have to do with me picking up chicks or, you know, <laughs> something, <laughs> something that's right, like right. totally mundane, but like somehow it all relates to that. Yeah, I had another one about uh, transcendental meditation. So, like, I got this new meditation app, but how come they want me to pay in advance? It's like they don't trust me. It's causing it's causing so much anxiety. I need a different kind of app. Yeah. So yeah. I went for transcendental meditation. I figured I'll give that a try. And they go there. The first thing you do is you have to pay them for a mantra. That's stressful. But, you know, tell me if you think this is weird. My mantra was scrotum. It's <laughs> really weird, you know. So I returned my mantra. I tried to take it back, but they, uh, they take PayPal, so they want to do it as a, on a subscription refund basis, blah, blah, blah. But just keep going with, like, how absurd is it? All these meditation apps make you pay in advance for the year, and it's like, that's kind of stressful. It's like, it's gonna it's gonna freak me out a little bit. Yeah, know? and then and then there's there's kind of there's kind of a couple of things yeah, that, yeah. that come from that too, which is like and then I don't know the joke around this, but a lot of atheists have you noticed that a lot of atheists are really into TM, and it's yeah. sort of like they they're they're so they they literally like I never have conversations about atheism other than with these people who are like really really atheists. <laughs> like I could never yeah. believe in a guy with a beard, and I'm like right. first off nobody has thought that God's a guy in a beard for a thousand years. Second. You just replaced it with you're paying five thousand dollars for a word a that word. that you know is somehow going to satisfy all your religious you know needs. And there's something I find very uh, uh, not uh, honest about that. That yeah, it's like at least go to the airport, let the Hare Krishnas give it to you for free. Yeah, right. And uh, you know somehow you can get them around to just believing in God. So you mean you believe in something that exists, but some text will make you happier. <laughs> And you could live your life that way, and it explains, you know, everything around you. It sounds like you're back to the Old Testament. Right. You got this old guy in a room with a beard sitting on the floor. You know, it's right. like back to the beginning. <laughs> the other thing is, I guess now that I'm thinking about comedy is also about saying what is on everyone's mind, but no one will say. So when I was just in Virginia, I went up on stage with the mask on, and I yeah. started, I grabbed the mic, and I started talking. But I made it in such a way that people really couldn't understand anything I was saying. And so after a second or two, everyone started laughing because that's what's on everyone's <laughs> mind. So, so that wasn't unusual other than the fact that just wearing masks are, and the fact that we're all okay with it, I guess, is unusual. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, it's all, it's interesting because it's all related. But I like the idea of taking it in, even into the personal, what you're doing with the Talmud, and it applies even all the way up to the seven days. Like just the seven days of creation, I think, is a guide to living life. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. 
And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access 
to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Just the seven days of creation, I think, is a guide to living life. Yeah. You know, the notion of entropy and trying to understand it, just from those two principles, you could come up with so many rules for life. It's ridiculous. Yeah, entropy. And there are other things like uh, time reversal, symmetry, and like symmetry in general, and how we use that. It's like a, it's like a mind hack. Uh, symmetry is a hack. Like if you know these laws apply to, to electrons, then all you have to do is change the sign to a positive charge. It's called a positron. And the same laws will work for that. Uh, in other words, an electron behaves like orbiting around a, a proton the same way a positron does orbiting around an anti-proton. Uh, in other words, it's symmetric under the reversal of, of time and charge. So, and like a pendulum. If, you, if I just show you a pendulum going back and forth, you can't tell me if I'm showing that to you in forward play or reverse play because the laws of physics are, are symmetric under the interchange of time with time reversal. So in other words, if you look at the solar system from above and the Earth's going around the sun, you can't tell if you're looking at it from above or you're looking at it from below with time being reversed. There's nothing in the laws of physics that can distinguish that. Now, why is it, though, that if that's true for, and that's true for molecules and positrons, how come that's not true, you know, how come we can't move backwards in time on a daily basis? In other words, how come there is an arrow of time that moves us forward? Maybe we should start the Big Bang talk now because that's deeply connected with, um, with this law of motion that says that time can only move forward. It's a mystery because we don't understand if the laws that these things are based on don't care about the sign of time. How can it be that the output result is radically dependent on the sign that you choose for time? In other words, there's a huge difference between an egg broken on the ground uh, versus an egg on the countertop, and yet the laws that govern it, there's nothing that prevents it from you know, jumping backwards and reassembling itself, but that never is observed to ever happen. Right, and you're saying there's nothing different because all the laws would still work if you reverse— Yeah, Newton's law applies to a pendulum— uh, going back and forth, and you can't tell what what which way time. If you imagine a movie of a pendulum, just play it forward. The pendulum clock is swinging, and not with a clock with a with a directional hand assigned to it. Just a pendulum going back and forth, no friction. 
you can't tell if you're watching that movie forward or reverse. But a pendulum is symmetric, whereas the breaking of an egg is not. The, the breaking of an egg feels like entropy. So it's, there's, there's order beforehand, chaos after. Well, so let's look, at, let's look at mixing cream into coffee. So mixing cream into coffee, the molecules are moving. There's nothing that prevents them. When you first pour it in, there's nothing that says that, that they can't all move in the same direction that they were poured in from, if you like, inside the coffee, and then unmix and just stay that way. There's nothing that says that. But what ends up happening is because of interactions with the macroscopic world that those cause entanglements that then prefer an increase in what we perceive as entropy or disorder or randomness. So in other words, the microscopic laws are not dependent on the sign choice of, of looking at the movie going forward or backwards. How come it's always seen that time goes forwards and never backwards? In other words, you know, pendulums never stop, you know, are never actually going backwards or they, you know, they never jump out of the pool and, and, and onto dry land. So, so, so the, based on our last conversation on the, on this stuff, it would seem like because we can't look at it from the outside. So let's say there's spaces in four dimensions, including some time component. We're inside, so it's hard to, like someone on the outside can see it in both directions, but we're inside, so we can't, is my assumption. Yeah, but it's also a big problem for the alternative models that we're discussing in that um, if you want to say that the universe uh, began from a, the big crunch of a previous universe, somehow that crunch, which we normally would think of as a very high entropy condition, you know, where everything's now compressed together, it has extreme randomness, it has to then emerge on the other side of the bounce or the origin point of the next universe at a very low entropy state, such that it can evolve into a higher entropy state today. So that is sometimes called the entropy, um, you know, conundrum when it comes to models like the cyclic universe that we're discussing. So the cyclic universe has to get rid of the entropy that was present in the previous universe even though it's coming into a collapsing state, and then rebound into a universe that begins with low entropy, right? The only way for entropy to increase ever forward into the future is to have uh, very low entropy at the beginning of the next cycle. So you need an entropy eraser. Could there be, uh, just like there's a Planck constant, right, for the smallest amount of size that could exist on any particle in the universe? Could there be some sort of entropy constant, which is sort of the lowest level of entropy that's allowed to exist? Yeah, that's very, very perceptive. Yeah. There's something called Boltzmann's constant, which is associated, it's basically the uh, proportionality constant that converts the number of arrangements of a combination of individual systems to make up a whole system, a microstates to then make up one macrostate. It's a proportionality between that number of states, actually technically the logarithm of that number of states, and what we call entropy. So the higher the number of states, the higher the logarithm will be. And then you multiply by this constant, lowercase k, that's called Boltzmann's constant. And that tells you what's called the entropy. So the more states, the more entropy, the higher the logarithm. And uh, Boltzmann actually, uh, unfortunately, committed suicide uh, at a very young age. Why? And it's not really known, uh, you know, it might be because, you know, he came to visit the University of California, Berkeley, uh, and he spent some time. Now, we don't know. Uh, he actually did go to Berkeley, uh, for visited Berkeley, I believe, uh, back uh, in the late 1800s. I'm not entirely sure, but what's interesting is that equation, entropy equals his constant times the logarithm of the number of states, that's engraved on his tombstone. So he committed suicide and now it later became, you know, it's universally known as this. He almost discovered quantum mechanics in a certain sense. So was Boltzmann's constant though, like let's say you take out the, the number of states, let's say there are no number of states and there's no, and the logarithms down to one or zero or whatever. Is there like a lowest point 
that entropy can be before you can't go any lower because now you're lower than Boltzmann's constant. Yeah, so you can actually measure entropy for like discrete systems. So for example, take a bag of pennies, 100 pennies, and then throw them on the ground. You know, you can calculate what is the entropy or disorder of that. And naturally, you'd expect, you know, 50 of them will be heads up on average, 50 of them will be uh, tails up, right? But there are states, there's nothing that prevents it from being all heads up, right? The laws of physics, and that's another good example of what I talked about earlier, the laws of physics, there's nothing that says that the, all the coins won't be heads up. But we never observe that because there's so many more states for them not to be all. There's only one state where they're all heads up, right? So the logarithm of that entropy has to give us, you know, this one state and then multiply by Boltzmann's constant if, if this were like atoms or something like that. And that would give us a measure of that entropy. But obviously there's many more states. There's a higher probability that aren't in that configuration. So it is easy to measure entropy for discrete systems. For like the air in the room that you're in, yes, there's some some probability for all the nitrogen molecules to be on one side of the room and all the oxygen atoms to be on the other side of the room. But that's one configuration out of, you know, 10 to the 26 to the you know, factorial combinations that there possibly are of, you know, pairwise or, you know, divided by that number divided by fact two factorial. So that uh, immensity far outweighs the one state. So because these th the probabilities depend on things of extremely large numbers, that's why we take the logarithm because that makes it a much smaller number. But even so, even in the case of like air molecules, it becomes impossible to actually uh, calculate that. So we end up taking uh, macroscopic properties. Like we just talk about the pressure of the air in the room and the partial pressure of nitrogen versus oxygen. We never talk about, well, what are the number of states of oxygen and nitrogen? Because uh, it's too difficult to actually compute that. But in principle, you could. So it could be the case that, so we've been talking about these big bang theories and, and one that we've been kind of aiming towards is this multiverse where it's like everything expands out and then everything contracts in until it gets to be some level small that the entropy is at the absolute minimum level. And then boom, for the next trillion years, it's going to be entropy is going to be increasing until it starts contracting again. What begins the contracting actually? Yeah. So that is, has to be governed by kind of the opposite force of expansion. So what's little appreciated, we talked about this in the very first episode of this uh, particular series. We talked about the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe that takes place. It, it goes faster. The rate of expansion goes faster, the more matter or energy there is in the universe. Partially, you could think of that as, you know, related to what we could consider the pressure of the universe, which is related to the relativistic energy density of the universe. But wait, is any matter or energy created after the Big Bang? Matter uh, can be created and destroyed at will, but energy can't be. Even though we think of the universe as coming about from nothing, that problem has to be solved by something like the multiverse in order for there to be an energy state prior to the Big Bang slash inflation. That has to, there has to be some storehouse of energy that we call the inflaton energy that has to come from somewhere. And so it's impossible for that to come from nowhere. But after that happens, then that energy can be interconverted into matter via the standard uh, e equals mc squared relationship. So uh, I think you're asking, how does the universe start to collapse? So that's an active uh, area of research. What I'm trying to say is that collapse is naturally thought of as the inverse of expansion, that there's many ways you can collapse, just as there are many ways you can expand. You can expand at a constant rate, for example. You could expand at an infinite number of constant rates, like well, you know, different universes would have different expansion rates. But you can also accelerate in your expansion. And that's what we observe in our universe today, that not only are galaxies moving away from the Milky Way galaxy, 
at some speed, but tomorrow they'll be moving away faster than that speed by some tiny amount that depends on how far away they are currently. And this is because of the influence of dark energy? Exactly. And dark energy is very allied and concomitant with what we think about the early universe's inflationary epoch must have been like. But whereas we know that there's dark energy or there's acceleration of the universe today, we don't know for sure that there was inflation in the early universe, which is why the stakes are so high for experiments like BICEP2 and, and, and the Simons Observatory, because we would like to go about and discover that there was an early period of acceleration that's not unlike the late time expansion that we're seeing that's accelerating as we speak. I mean, there's constant books and theories and everything about inflation, but all that still is not quite guess, but hypothesis. Well, we have a lot of evidence. So it, it's wrong. What it's natural to do, and you and I were talking about like religious conceptions of the origin of the universe. And, and again, I never talk, I never try to convince somebody to believe something or not. I don't even know what I believe in, to be honest with you, as you know. But the point is, if you think about what is mankind's earliest kind of scientific, quasi-metaphysical conceptions, it had to do with where did the universe come from? At least, you know, once once they were free of, of you know, having to hunt big game every day or whatever, and they had some time to be, you know, philosophers, they were thinking about where did it come from? And one of the things that they came up with was obviously there was a religious, you know, God created the universe or many gods created the universe. We'll get into that later, I'm sure. Uh, but, but specifically, this quest to understand the origin of the universe, that goes by a different name. That is not what we practice as cosmologists. So cosmology is the study of the evolution of the universe since it was uh, since it existed. So the different ways that it could have existed um, is really falling more properly under the title cosmogony, you know, cosmic genesis. And just to understand, so cosmology would be like, okay, this is how galaxies formed. Here's how the solar system formed. Here's how the Earth formed. Yes, but, and, then and here's this, how they're expanding, right. And, and then there's a separate theory, which is... Well, was it a Big Bang? Was it a quantum soup? Was it, you know, this or yeah. that or multiverse yeah. or a simulation? That's cosmogony. Yes, that would be more properly framed under that. Now, there are no professional, you know, physical, experimental cosmogenists. Uh, so we do subsume it under that. But to be technical, the origin of the universe is could be totally uh, different than, uh, than, say, discussing the inflationary universe. So What's when you said that you know everyone really has these different theories of inflation? That's true, but it doesn't mean it's not extremely rigorous in the domain in which it applies. In other words, if you try to use Darwinian theory to explain the origin of life, it's it's hopeless. So in in your analogy, you'd say, well, there are all these different theories, and nobody really understands it. But you wouldn't say evolution is not true. You'd say no, it's true, but it applies in the natural selection and and variation of traits and and sort of survival of the fittest, whatever that would be totally applicable. So so one way you can kind of determine, I guess, you know, at some point, everybody's doing math behind all these things to, to figure out the properties, you know, microsecond or nanosecond by nanosecond. And maybe what you said earlier, you, you have to start everything off with some minimal state of entropy because ever after you have to expand, you know, entropy gets greater from that maybe, you know, starting from nothing, you could start to derive all the equations of what happens first as entropy has its first stage, second stage, third stage, and so on. Right. Or, or another way to say it is just knowing that, um, that, that DNA exists or that evolution takes place, that doesn't tell you anything about how life itself got started. Those are two separate things. One is, one is called, you know, origin of life, basically biogenesis. 
And there are different theories of that, which will be fun for another series of podcasts, books, audiobooks, et cetera. And it's called, you know, there are many theories of how the origin of life took place as there are for the origin of the universe. And that's because these are fundamentally kind of like chicken or egg questions, uh, which reminds me once my, my, my nine-year-old was like, I know how to find out which came first, the chicken or the egg. I said, really? And he said, uh, yeah, just order a chicken and an egg on Amazon and see which comes first. But don't fuck. That's so good. that was pretty clever. Yeah, I like uh, that. But, uh, but, but in reality, there's a cosmic chicken or egg story that you and I are talking about. And there are many different ways of explaining the origin of life. By the way, one of my favorite ones has a name that sounds really dirty, but it's not. It's called panspermia panspermia. So we should talk about that sometime. Uh, all these abiogenesis. In other words, life comes from non-life. How does that happen? Well, it's the same kind of question as how does, how does um, the universe come from non-universe? How does consciousness come from non-conscious life? These are the most interesting questions of all. Of course, the only one I'm really qualified to discuss is how the universe might have come into existence. All these involve what are called initial condition problems or initial value problems. How do you determine the initial state of a system when you're not able to witness it and provide any physical uh, data from the actual origin of, uh, of it itself. In other words, if you make if you make a new type of hyper chicken, you know whatever a new new car or something like you can describe. Oh, how did I come up with the with the Tesla or whatever? But in this case, we weren't there. No one can ever go there to take direct physical evidence in the form of data. So we're relying on models and theories that they then have to comport with the evidence we see around us today. So you described galaxies just a few minutes ago. Inflation describes how galaxies could emerge and have the exact properties that we, we observe, but only predicated on some mechanism that started off inflation in the first place. It seems like a lot of these critical first theories of things, and let's stick with the universe one, implies that at some point there was an area where... It, it's beyond all the rules. So for instance, a singularity, as you've pointed out in the past, we've never noticed something in the universe that is infinite, either infinitely big or infinitely small. And a singularity is sometimes described as being infinitely small and infinitely dense, and then for some magical reason explodes, which is why considering that that is outside the laws of physics as we understand it, that singularity, that the big crunch makes more sense, that everything was contracting until it got to some constant where entropy can't go any lower and then it explodes again. Right. Yeah, so that it more comports with the notion that we seem to have that uh, effect must be preceded by cause. And so if you see everything that's just effect, there's no cause preceding it, that's very distasteful to the human mind. And that's why things like singularities end up playing an important role because singularities allow you in some sense to admit that you're ignorant, but but sort of sidestep the actual problem itself and assume that the predicate took place. In other words, assume that there was a singularity and that singularity was driven, you know, into existence and had certain properties, including the origin of time. You know, we, we think of even like the origin of space when we think about the universe, you think about some explosion or whatever. But like the origin of time is just as big a problem as the origin of space. You know, it may be even Bigger. So let me ask you a question, and this is, we've probably dealt with this in some of the multiverse discussions, but let's take our current universe, and there's all these black holes, which at the center of a black hole is, is supposedly something similar to a singularity, something infinitely dense, or at least dense so that there's no more entropy in it. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's a multiverse version where 
every time there's one of these really intense black holes, it explodes and that creates a new universe. And it's just kind of this ongoing universes within universes within universes that, you know, our universe will give birth to trillions of new universes through, through black holes. And this universe itself was once uh, infinitely small in front of, in a black hole in some other universe and on and on forever. But you know what the question I'm going to ask you is, right? No. Where did the, where did that multiverse come from? It's always infinite. It's always been there. So then you are ascribing, in some sense, a static universe. Like, there is a static, what we used to call nowadays, you know, when I was a kid, we used to call uh, the universe everything there was. But now you're you're kind of, and I'm not, you know, I'm not right. criticizing you. This is actually what people think about, right? But, so, but, but each static universe, though, doesn't fall subject to the, the contradictions of the steady-state universe we described in the first episode because we're all following these rules of starting within other universes that started, you know, according to all the laws of physics. So there wouldn't be contradictions like there was in the steady state universe. Right. So, so that is a, a superior attribute of your, of your model, this multiverse. I should also point out, it's not mandatory that it be, so there's different types of infinity, right? There's like the infinity of the number of numbers that you can count on your fingers if you had enough fingers. Right. But then there's the infinite number of digits in pi. There's the, you know, rational numbers, irrational numbers. There are different classes of those. There's infinity to the infinity power. You know, so there's different classes of infinity. And there's also different classes of eternality, right? So you can have an eternal universe that lasts forever, right? You would say that that's eternal, correct? Yeah. Uh, but it, it could come into existence. It could come into existence and be eternal to the future, but not eternal to the past. And and what it came from existence, from that process of coming to existence, could be et eternal. Right? Or it could be finite. In other words, it could be that time came into existence, and all you have to do, all quote-unquote, is account for the origin of time. And that is another concept that people have. In fact, that's related to one of the Hawking Hartle uh, universes that we'll talk about eventually, and that is you know, that there is an origin of time itself, and then from time uh, coming into existence, every the space can come into existence, and there are processes by which you know we can convert sort of the energy associated with the dimension of time in a geometric sense. We can convert that energy, some of that, break it off, and convert some of it into spatial dimensions. It could even be that there's more than the three spatial dimensions that we perceive to exist. So there could be that nothing takes place, no events take place prior to some moment. And then at this moment, then time breaks apart into a spatial dimension or three spatial dimensions or more and one time dimension. Let me ask about that because it could be the case that the word prior, right, doesn't make any sense. So exactly. for, for instance, as let's say we're reversing the yes. process of the Big Bang. So now we're moving into this infinitely small dot. It's everything's getting going fast because it was an explode. Everything's going faster and faster in reverse into this infinitely small dot. And again, with special relativity, doesn't that slow down how how the universe itself perceives time? So that that final step of going into the infinitely small dot sort of takes I don't know how to describe it, but takes infinitely long time to occur. So it never actually mm. is in the dot. It's just kind of going like uh, asymptotically into yes. that, that first moment. Yes, that's exactly right. That's an asymptotic expansion. Yes, yeah, so, but the question that people have wrestled with ever since Lemaitre uh, and others came up with the idea of the Big Bang is, is yes, how do we 
of what it, what are the the conditions that must precede you know forgetting about the technical distinction which is important between you know the big bang calling that the origin of time or the origin of the lightest elements as we spoke about uh, there are things where people say the universe came from nothing. Lawrence Krauss had a book called that, A Universe from Nothing, uh, which basically says there's a quantum fluctuation that caused the, our universe to tunnel into existence, converting quantum mechanical, you know, zero-point energy into, you know, positive universe and a negative energy universe in the form of gravity, complementing the positive energy universe in the form of matter. And so you don't violate conservation of energy, which says you can't create or destroy energy, but you can have matter, et cetera. But that always asks the question, where do the laws of quantum mechanics come from? Is that something that should trouble us? In other words, he's saying, Krauss and other people are saying, that the universe can kind of tunnel into existence for, as a quantum fluctuation. But it's also, so you ask, a quantum fluctuation of what? And you'd say a quantum fluctuation in some field. Well, where did that field come from? And there's no answer to that. Could that be infinite? So like, could there be this quantum foam that just of baryons or whatever that always existed. And then conservation of energy, like, you know, a trillion quarks kind of like appeared out of, you know, was transmuted from energy into quarks. And that was enough to create a big bang in that quantum foam that created a universe. Yeah, so that this is kind of the this proposal of of Hawking and others that there was um that there, you know, essentially that there was no time that we can conceive of before a certain event took place and that you can call that the big bang that's you know kind of the boundary condition. What's interesting is that in a physical system, what you must always specify, say just take a pendulum, you know, like a grandfather clock's pendulum clock, um that thing swinging back and forth will have different properties depending on how long the pendulum stick is. That actually is uniquely determinant of how long, how long it takes to make a swing back and forth. That's all that you determines that in, in a gravitational field. And then there's also like, where did you start off the, the pendulum to begin with? Did you displace it from the equilibrium position at the bottom? Uh, you must do that for it to move back and forth. So there's two conditions. One is called the boundary. How far can the pendulum swing back and forth, which is bounded by its length? And where did it start? So what Hawking says and with this collaborator, James Hartle, who's a cosmologist at UC Santa Barbara, they had this theory that essentially there was nothing before the Big Bang, but that's because effectively there was no time. Time came into existence at this particular moment, at a moment. So the universe has properties, basically potentiality at all times, to, and this could happen again. In other words, it could happen an infinite number of times. It could have happened once. Uh, and what they're essentially saying is that time itself can come into existence and form a notion of what it means to go in time, right? So it's very perplexing. We think of time as like this number line or counting numbers in your head. By the way, everybody perceives time differently. How do you, when you're counting, do you hear the numbers or do you see the numbers? Um, I don't know. Probably a little both. Like you don't go one, two, three, or like when you count, when you like want to know what letter comes after Q in the alphabet, do you like sing the song? It. You picture it. Okay. So I sing the song, uh, Q, R, S. So I'll know it from that. Okay. Interesting. So, and just like that, just like, um, the way that different people perceive numbers, we also each perceive a candle flame differently. Like I can't tell you what you perceive as the color purple. I don't know what that is. I know that we can agree on it once we calibrate, oh, that thing over there is purple. My YouTube logo is purple. Uh, okay, so what Brian's calling purple, I call purple. But it could be that actually if I went into your brain, it's what I call green. Um, so it's it's sort of this, this notion of, of interpretation. What we call time 
is almost like that. It's almost like a, 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 an, an impossible thing to define in that it could be that time is what we define everything else relative to, or it could be that we use uh, we define time relative to events. So the mixing of coffee molecules with cream molecules, we can say how long that takes by the number of different possibilities and the branching off and the duration it takes to create a new state. And we could say that this is one state, and then 10 to the minus 15 seconds later will mean when uh, that's enough time to create another state. So that's kind of defining time emergently by physical processes. In other words, do you assume that time is the independent variable or the dependent variable? In this case, they're assuming that it's, it's coming into existence. They're assuming it's essentially a dependent variable. So I feel like this makes a lot of sense because let's say everything comes from this initial state of the lowest possible entropy. So, and let's say that state is in, in this singularity. So everything, everything is changing relative to each other, right? There's no human to perceive any of this stuff. So everything is changing relative to each other. So things are going infinitely fast back into the singularity. Like if we're doing it in reverse, things are going, objects, mass is going infinitely fast back into the singularity. And time because of relativity is going infinitely more slow as this happens. And that's why there's no sense of prior. It's because that relative motion of time and mass is going to happen in some weird way, infinitely. It's going to take infinitely long to get into the singularity, but we only perceive it now after the fact. So we see time happening, what we call normally, but that didn't, you know, it was still fitting the laws of physics but it was happening infinitely slow because everything was reaching this constant speed and, and, and infinitely dense mass. Yeah, the problem with that is that you will, um, from these equations, want to derive a, a law that will apply not only at the beginning of the universe, if it had a singular beginning, but that should apply today. But wouldn't relativity do that? Well, relativity, again, the word relative means that it's, the, it's describing the perception by at least two observers. So how will two observers agree on the meaning of time? It's not, it's not enough to have one observer to define relativity any more than you can tell if you're moving in the train car or if the train next to you is moving and you're stationary. Because unless you have two different reference frames, it's kind of a, a meaningless question, right? So you can ask how, how you perceive time, but you can't measure anything physical about that unless you have at least one other event or entity in the universe to measure against. So in their case, it's not enough to have um, only relativity. You also have to have quantum mechanics. And, and that always, to me, just being honest, it always, like, you can say that the universe emerged from a quantum fluctuation, but I'm still going to want to know where do the laws of quantum mechanics come from? It may be that they're just like, you know, I think I asked you this, like, have you ever seen a triangle? Yeah, right. And you can't, you can't. You can't see the point. We can only just theorize about the point. Exactly. So you might only be able to, like, you may have never seen quantum mechanics or quantum mechanics might not exist, or maybe it does exist in what's called the Hilbert space. So, so in other words, maybe everything is just mathematics and we're just extremely, you know, advanced mathematics and, are, you know, and, and working together just as the molecules don't know about entropy 
in the beginning. If you just have a ping pong ball by itself, a one one yellow ping pong ball, there's no notion of entropy until you add in a couple more ping pong balls and more green ping pong balls and and red ping pong balls. Then you can start describing the variation relative to the other states that can equally claim to be equal, you know, to themselves. And then you can get the emergent property of entropy and with regard to ping pong balls. Okay, but I I I still don't understand where if if it's the case that everything kind of goes infinitely fast and then infinitely slower as it goes to this infinitely dense dot why do we have to think about a before it's just it's just forever if we're doing this in reverse it's like it's as if it's if we were to perceive it it was as if it was getting slower and slower and slower forever and that's where there is no big bang except for the fact that unless we take it to infinity which we can never do so right, but the, the problem is that there these models have to have some kind of uh, field within them. So it, it's not enough to just have the notion of time, which you know, in other words, relativity is is predicated on the existence of matter. So you can't ignore the matter. Otherwise, there's no observers. There's no reference frames, right? Right. So there, there's matter getting infinitely dense and infinitely small as it gets sucked back in. We're going in reverse, right? So it's getting sucked back into the singularity. So there, right. there's still there's still all the matter in the universe. Right. But then again, where does the singularity come from? So in a black hole, we know where it comes from. It comes from all the matter falling into it from a from a super dense star or an expo- you know companion being swallowed up by another star that exceeds a certain limit called the Chandrasekhar limit. Um, so <clears throat> in that case, we know there had to be preceding existing matter that then became, in, in this model of the emergence of time, there has to be quantum mechanics. In other words, there has to be something that exists. Now, you can call it the laws of physics, right? You can't say, um, and, and even there, they need more because they need this thing called a scalar field, which is kind of like this inflaton that we talked about before that allows you know, for fluctuations to then manifest themselves and what inflation actually does very well predicting the distribution of galaxies. But getting back to this, their their claim in the original paper is that there's a ground state of an excitation of a wave function. So wave function is like the F equals MA, right. the acceleration term, uh, the second derivative of, of something called uh, the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics called the Schrodinger equation. So they say the universe as a whole has a wave function. It's incredibly complicated. We can every single particle in the universe is described by this wave function. The wave function has been evolving for a period of time that we perceive to be 13.8 billion years. Uh, but at the very beginning, if you go back in time, the wave function had uh, a very simple form. It was just like pure energy. It had a configuration called the ground state. Uh, but the wave function existed. But what I'm asking you is the philosophical problem. Where does the notion of quantum mechanics itself come from? In other words, is that fundamental? Yeah. Did that exist forever? It has to, right? And uh, but but again, this is maybe it's asking too much of these theories, and that we just can't comprehend something truly, you know, that is eternal. It's just impossible for us to comprehend that. But I feel like we're assuming always that for any moment, there's a moment before it, and. Wouldn't it be the case that, again, as things, I, I I'm sort of keep asking the same thing in different ways, but as things speed up to infinite velocity, that time itself infinitely slows down to compensate for that. And so we never quite get to a prior, there's some moment where we never, we still stay within the rules, but we never get to a prior moment. So the, the answer to your question is that's, that's what's happening. That's, 
that's the beginning. What you're saying is implicitly kind of sneaking the ball across the goal line because you're assuming that's, that time is slowing down, but you have to ask a question again, relative to what? Who is observing this slowing down? Who is this manifest to? Because if you traveled near the speed of light, James, you don't feel anything different. Nothing happens to you differently. You wouldn't get more dense. You wouldn't get more dense. You'd only get, you know, compressed relative to me. I would see you as more dense because you'd be undergoing what's called length contraction. So, so the observers are all the, uh, you know, quantum particles that still exist in all of matter. But where are they living? Because they're also collapsing along with space-time itself. Right. So where are they living? They're, they're, they're dragged along, you know, they're kind of dragged along for the ride. So, so there's no place they come from. I'm looking at it as if the universe is rewinding in reverse. They're kind of contracting in and they never quite get to the point where they're from. Again, yeah. So then you have to embed that. You're, you are embedding it implicitly in a higher dimensional visualization. You're, you're assuming, you know, the beach balls are condensing, but that's relative to three-dimensional world. Uh, what I'm saying is on the surface of the beach ball, life would carry on. You know, muons would live 500 microseconds there as they live 500 microseconds in my lab. So there'd be no change in perception of what's taking place. The physical processes wouldn't depend unless you embed it in some bigger space, which then presupposes that the larger space has to exist. And that's what's the infinite regress that we're faced with. Yeah, so what happens if there is no space outside of this space? Like this infinite contraction is all of space that exists. That's the definition of space. You know, space curves around, there's nothing outside of it. Why does there have to be something outside of this infinitely contracting space? There doesn't have to be. It's just that we're mixing metaphors when we talk about, you know, expansion and collapse in the context of the origin of a dimension itself. We normally don't talk about the dimensions of the space in which this is happening contracting. In other words, when Andromeda is moving, you know, farther away from us or closer to us, we can say that relative to a fixed grid of coordinates. Now we're saying those coordinates are changing and you have to ask, how, what are they changing with respect to? The rulers will shrink too, right? So if you're measuring you know, 20 yards to Andromeda Galaxy, that ruler is going to get smaller. You're always going to measure Andromeda being 20 yards away because even the right. molecules in the ruler are shrinking because space itself is shrinking. What these right. guys, Hartle and Hawking, did is they say that the really fundamental thing is perhaps space and that space has always existed. So what we call space, the three dimensions of space, but that time was carved out of space. In other words, there might have been a higher dimensional space with no time. We, we talk about four-dimensional space-time, but there might have been just space. And then uh, looking back at a certain moment that we then perceive and can measure that one of those dimensions broke off into time. And that point is what they're calling the singularity. And what caused that to happen was a quantum mechanical process. But what's causing me trouble is that the universe at all times must have had quantum mechanics operating for this to be true. In other words, quantum mechanics must be a permanent feature of the universe. And it's like saying, in the very beginning of, of let's just take the conventional Big Bang, a microsecond after the, you know, whatever happened, you know, a microsecond before the formation of the elements. The universe is so hot and dense at that point, there's nowhere where Newtonian mechanics can be found to be applicable. In other words, the, you have to look at the universe in terms of general relativity. The gravity fields are so strong that all of Newton's laws are wrong, but all of Einstein's rules are right. And Einstein always reduces to Newton when the masses are small or the distances are large, right? You remember we, we talked a little bit right. about that. But so, so it's as if Newton's laws emerge 
over time, right? In the beginning, they're totally inapplicable. If you're around back then, you say Newton's a total crackpot. Nothing he's saying is true. But eventually, wait enough time, oh, it does apply. It does apply. It emerged. It seems to have emerged. Now, what they're saying is that quantum mechanics, you know, is that which never has to emerge. It has always existed. You know, I feel like that's another, that avoids the chicken or egg creation of, the, of energy from nothing, perhaps, but it doesn't avoid another chicken or egg problem, which is where did quantum mechanics come from? Right. So you're saying, let's say we're, we were, you know, the, the Big Bang was this fluctuation in some huge quantum foam and that there's big bangs happening all over the place in this foam. So there's truly, you know, infinite number of universes. Where does this quantum foam come from? And what's the problem with that having been a steady state forever? Yeah, that's my fundamental problem with it. Of course, there's much more information in it, but, but again, yeah, maybe that's the title of the book, you know, Chickens and Eggs. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and is that, could that also be where gravity is from? So that's why gravity is weaker inside the universe because it basically emanates from outside the universe, but still has these properties that are similar to other waves while still being completely different from other waves. Yeah, if indeed gravity can be quantized, you know, if, if there is a quantum theory of gravity. So this is one proposal, and I'm going to, I have an interview in a couple minutes. I know you have to go too, but let's just leave off here by saying this is exactly what these other origin stories come to remove, this particular chicken and egg situation. By saying it is eternal, but cyclical, that is another form of eternality that doesn't require the creation of quantum mechanical laws, the creation of energy from nothing, and so forth. So this is a very powerful and attractive alternative to these no-boundary proposals, basically saying that the universe didn't have a beginning in time. So could this also, uh, I hate to use the word, unify dark energy with gravity? So they're both forces outside of what we perceive no, as the universe. No, it couldn't, but it could unify, uh, and, and it's very important that you mention this, it could unify uh, the dark energy with inflation. If, in, if inflation can be encoded in the no boundary proposal, it could unify the acceleration that's taking place today, James, with the acceleration that inflation supporters believe took place in the very beginning. In other words, there's very, very perplexing. Why did the universe start uh, from nothing, perhaps, uh, maybe just the laws of quantum mechanics, then expand, accelerate, then stop expanding and accelerating, you know, slow down to a, to a constant expansion rate, then start to speed up again in an accelerating universe, perhaps eventually turn around. And, you know, so in other words, it's stop, start, stop, start. Uh, it's very perplexing how that actually occurs. And, uh, but you're right, that theory also gets unified with perhaps the origin of matter itself through what's called the Higgs mechanism. The Higgs boson you've probably heard about. Uh, they won the Nobel Prize, Peter yeah. Higgs and the partner. Um, but, but in reality, there's very similar laws of the quantum mechanics of the Higgs particle the, uh, and the inflationary and dark energy kind of expansion um, epochs. And we should definitely talk about that because, yes, you're right. It doesn't have to do with dark matter, though, and except for the fact that dark matter has mass and the Higgs ma particle produces mass or what we perceive as mass, inertial mass, through interactions with the Higgs boson. So uh, you're on the right track, basically. There are relationships. It's just not with dark matter necessarily. All right, so uh, we'll schedule the next one. And yeah. you're cool with all this? I'm enjoying these. So, And I think, I think it's going to be a, a valuable set of uh, episodes and plus book. I think this is, no one's ever really dived deep into all of these different theories from, from the point of view too, of like layman to expert. Yeah. And, the, and, and to, and to think about how important this is 
the ultimate issues of life, you know, we don't think about these things, but like that time had an origin, that space, that matter had an origin. What could be more delightfully delicious a puzzle to to think about trying to solve in our lifetimes? And that's what makes it so appealing to me. No, I never get tired of this. All right, great. And then I think also there's room to talk about why, why it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Beyond entertainment, there's there's something else here that it's interesting to explore these. You mean um, in terms this, of like metaphysics or religion or meaning meaning yeah, questions? Yeah, or, or like what we were talking about earlier, like just live, living life because, we've mm-hmm. been, because we're able to explore this and, and what we're learning from it and deriving from it and how that affects the way we live. Meaning. It gives you meaning, right. Yeah. It can give you meaning, right, which a lot of scientists – you know, are comfortable without having. In other words, they just do their science, and that's fine. I'm not criticizing. But what if they knew that, hey, actually, this is, and this is what we used to call philosophy, but physicists have a derisive view of philosophy in general. But really, I think it can bring up great puzzles and great other puzzles and mysteries that physicists are all too keen to solve. So I think it will be a value service to physicists as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll schedule more and and upwards and onwards. All right, my friend. Have a great day. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.